Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, the trail less traveled is being recorded in the back of an old Land Rover 110 parked across from the Roxy Theater here in the heart of Missoula, Montana. It is the International Wildlife Film Festival week, and it's the first day. It's Earth Day. That said, every day is Earth Day. I'm sitting here in the Land Rover with Kylie Stott, Logan Staley, and Tab Murphy. We just stepped out of the Roxy Theater after I watched for the first time Kangaroo Valley, and... I cried, I laughed, I cried and laughed again. I was sitting on the edge of my seat. It was phenomenal. Today, they also found out that it's been recognized by Rotten Tomatoes as one of the best wildlife documentary out there. And I have to agree, it really moved me more than any documentary I've seen recently. And I need that as a person in conservation to be around that kind of inspiration and people like this. So I'm super honored to have the three of you agree to sit in the back of this Land Rover and speak with me. My first question for each of you is, where did you grow up? And how was adventure part of your childhood? really curious to dive into the evolution of you as a adventurer, as a storyteller, as a person who appreciates this planet. So I grew up in Australia. I grew up in a little town not too dissimilar to Missoula. In fact, it was much smaller. We only had a pub and a school and that was it. There was no main street, nothing. The nearest town was about 20 minutes away and it had about 11,000 people. So very remote. And a lot of people ask why I made Kangaroo Valley and where, where the idea came from. This really was what my life was growing up. I lived with my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt and my sister on this farm, and we would rescue wildlife um, a lot when I was a child, and we rescued everything, sugar gliders, koalas, little microbats, lots of birds, but also eastern grey kangaroos, which is, you know, the animal featured in Kangaroo Valley. You know, the main character in the film, Mala, she has a little sister at the end of the film named Jira. And I snuck that one in because that was actually the name of my mother's favorite little kangaroo, Joey, that we raised. I really, you know, grew up in a space where all the women in my family really intrinsically understood the land. I come from a generation of farmers. My mother's family were actually convicts who were taken out to Australia and so have been working the land ever since they arrived. I'm used to walking across the land and knowing, you know, every species of grass, knowing the calls of the birds. Now I live in Los Angeles and I'm learning all of the wildlife of California, but I do find it strange walking through a wild space and not knowing all those things. Um, but it's actually really wonderful to try and learn that. All three of us now live in Hollywood. But we all grew up in small towns, right? And well, so... And Logan, you grew up in... I grew in up in Montana. In Montana. In Montana. Yeah. yeah, so Logan, you... I grew up in Billings, which is about five hours away from Missoula. So this is a fun trip for me to come back to Montana and visit my brother and family here. Yeah, growing up in Billings, I mean, it wasn't quite as exciting as Kylie's uh, raising kangaroos and everything. I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> but I, I was part of, like, the Boy Scouts, so we, we, we did a lot of hikes around Montana, which, you know, there's a million of those you can you do around Billings and around Bozeman and everywhere. 
my grandpa was a farmer, so we, we can go to the farm and just run around the forest, around around the farm and around the streams and rivers. And I always like to go fly fishing. I always release the fish. That's what my go-to. Just going to little tiny streams and kind of being stealthy in, in the wilderness was always fun for me. Whenever I can go back and fly fish Montana, it's always a fun time for me. So, yeah. Outstanding. I'm Tab Murphy. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Olympia, Washington, you know, the state capital, which is about an hour south of Seattle. But I grew up hunting and fishing and backpacking and camping and all of those things. So I grew up primarily in the outdoors a lot. I spent a lot of time in the outdoors and I spent a lot of time exploring not only Washington, but Oregon and Idaho and even Montana. And I'm not a stranger to Missoula by any stretch because of that reason. So growing up like that has really informed what stories I like to tell as a writer. And you can see if you sort of track some of the stories I've done, whether they're animated stuff or live action stuff, there's a lot of thematically sort of man or, or woman's place in nature or, you know, in trying to figure out what that relationship is all about, whether that was Gorillas in the Mist or Tarzan for Disney. So I can go all the way back into my DNA and see where a lot of the stories that uh, I've been fortunate enough to tell, including this one, have come from. So it's very cool. If you just tuned in, you're on the trail as traveled, and today we're recording in the portable recording studio across from the Roxy Theater. It's Earth Day and the first day of the International Wildlife Film Festival. I was wondering if we could start to talk about Kangaroo Valley as a place and kind of the inspiration for making the film, and then maybe when we come back, we'll really dive into the film itself. Our main filming location is an incredible place in Namadji National Park, which is just outside of Canberra, the capital of Australia. Even growing up in Australia, you always look to places like North America, Africa, you know, the wolves in Yellowstone. These, these are these kind of incredible animal stories which people sort of aspire to around the world. And I think what's really sad about Australia's wildlife is that particularly Australians don't really celebrate that wildlife particularly. We don't think that we have, you know, I've got a few kangaroos and like smaller marsupials kicking around, but we don't have these kind of big lions and tigers and bears that usually, you know, kind of really fascinate people. But I actually think that's completely wrong. And I think that the reason why we celebrate these places in North America and, and Africa is because storytellers have taken their imagination to these places and incredible cinematographers have gone to these places and captured them and, and thus captured the imagination of audiences around the world. And so that's what you know, me and the team really wanted to do with Kangaroo Valley. I think the kind of animal wildlife spectacles you can see in Australia, like you see in the film, these dingoes hunting kangaroos is as incredible as wolves hunting in Yellowstone or, you know, tigers and cheetahs hunting on the African plains. And I just really wanted to bring that to life and to be able to celebrate the incredible beauty of Australia and you know, Tab, you know, as the fortune of screenwriters tends to go, they don't usually get to go out to these places, but Tab actually just went to visit after making the film um, yes. to Namagina National Park. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure, sure. You know, I love wilderness 
wild spaces, wildlife. I've connected to them in so many facets of my life. But oftentimes, as Kylie pointed out, like on Gorillas and other, uh, like when I wrote Brother Bear for Disney, those guys all got to go up to Katmai to hang out with grizzly bears. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, you know, I did not get to go. So oftentimes I have to take the bull by the horns and go to these places myself when I've written, for instance, uh, Gorillas. On this one, Jess and I decided we had some time. Let's go to Australia. I have to go to this place. I had to see it. And it was as magical and cool and special as it's portrayed in, in the film. And one of the crew members took us in, and we went in at dark, which, you know, when you grow up hunting, you do a lot of walking in the dark before dawn, right? Or fishing or things like that. So that was, you know, a mile in, in the dark to this promontory overlooking this special magical valley. And as the sun rose, everything just started to reveal itself, including kangaroos. And we were lucky enough to see dingoes and see dingoes on the hunt that morning. And uh, as I mentioned in the Q&A after the screening, Josh told us, our guide, and one of his jobs was to be a spotter very early in the morning, up before dawn, on this promontory as the sun rose, letting the team know what was going down in the valley, where specifically, and then back at base camp, helicopters would take off and drones would take off and guys in ATVs with, you know. He sat on that promontory for a week or more before dingoes would show up. So we just felt especially lucky that that morning we got to see Bobtail Bob and a couple other dingoes and so it was it was incredible it's truly magical and it's great because it is remote and you it takes an effort to get there those are my favorite places mm-hmm. you know listen i love yellowstone and i love old faithful and all that but i love getting off the beaten path and that felt like quite a ways off the beaten path so it was it was really cool yeah, so that was the sort of genesis of the of the film. But then Tab and Logan came in in the what we call the post production stage. So we did all of our filming, and then we really start to get into the writing, and then we start to really get into the music. And there's very few projects you have in your career where there's kind of this extra magical fairy dust, and that comes from this incredible kind of creative synergy between the team and everyone that worked on this film. I think poured so much into it and we all clicked really well and the results were just astounding. The music that Logan and his co-composer Scott Salinas did was absolutely incredible and I think for me and I'm sure for you Logan one of the highlights was that we actually got Sia to collaborate on the film so she's one of the world's biggest pop stars. Lots of people don't know that she's Australian. Logan, I would really love for you to talk about what that process then after Sia sent us that initial song, because I've never seen a song evolve like that, and it was really incredible to see that process. You were able to, you know, explain some of that? Yeah, yeah, so we got the Sia call in, and we were excited. We're trying to also figure out how we were going to go from the score to the song and try to bridge the gap between that score world and the song world, and... We kind of came up with the idea, what if we could record a children's choir, because that would actually fit the score really well, and maybe if she would have liked to record you know, the choir for the song as well. 
in the end, we did record the choir, two different sessions. One session was for the score, and the other session was kind of for the song, for Sia's song. So that was kind of a cool uh, bridge in between the score and, and, and the song. And and if you listen to at the end of the movie, you can kind of hear the the, ch- the children's choir um, kind of matching, you know, the sound of that with the score into the end of the song. So that, that was a lot of fun. And yeah, just recording live musicians like that, it was just so magical to have them on board. Sydney Children's Choir as well as the indigenous um, Gondwana Choir. And we also did record the Budapest Orchestra remotely as well. So that was kind of fun. We got to kind of record all over around the world um, on this one. So, yeah. Today, the trail has traveled is being recorded across from the Roxy Theater. It's Earth Day. It's the first day of the International Wildlife Film Festival. And I'm sitting here in the Land Rover with Kylie Stott, Logan Staley, and Tab Murphy. It's now time for a song. I did think long and hard about this, but it is See As We Can Do Anything for, <laughs> for the soundtrack because, and this is what I mean about the, the sort of magic fairy dust of this project. I am Australian. I wanted the film to have a very uniquely Australian sound. I wanted it to have a modern, fresh, fun sound. So much natural history is that sort of very traditional classical music, strings quartet, and Logan and Scott did such incredible things, you know, recording with modern instruments in a way that makes some sound like uh, the didgeridoo using dingo barks as sort of like percussive elements in the in the music and I think the results are just incredible and it was exactly what I wanted to get out of it and it, it really feels uniquely Australian and really captures the the adventure and spirit and danger and love of, of that landscape. Marla has beaten the odds and reached an important milestone, her first full year outside the pouch. This season's new crop of joeys have emerged, trying out their first awkward hops, just as Marla once did. Seems like a lifetime ago. Someday, Marla will teach her own joys the lessons that she has learned. The rituals and ways of kangaroos that have remained unchanged for eons in this secret valley 
of great wonder and magic. Today, the trail has traveled. It's being recorded across from the Roxy Theater. We are sitting in the back of an old Land Rover Defender. And when I say we, I'm talking about Kylie Stott, Logan Staley, and Tab Murphy. Kylie is the director and producer of Kangaroo Valley. Logan is the composer, and Tab is the screenwriter. We are talking about Kangaroo Valley. One of the opening scenes in the film is just this beautiful view of Australia. And then we go through the clouds and we get closer and closer to Earth. And then we come, come in, into the mountains and like suddenly there we are with the mob of the kangaroos. It was stunning. So I do want to talk to you a little bit about the cinematography and then a little bit about the wildlife involved in the movie. We had an incredible cinematography team that worked on Kangaroo Valley. We were filming for over 12 months in the valley. We filmed about 300 hours of footage and all of that condenses down into this one beautiful story. But a particular shout out I think needs to go to the crew that filmed the dingoes hunting, which were the most complex sequences to try and capture. Trying to film an animal like a dingo, which is a long-ranging predator, which hunts over huge distances. They'll run for miles and miles to hunt down a, a single animal. The only way to keep up with an animal like that is with a helicopter. And so we work with cameras that are mounted to the front of the helicopter but you can't have a helicopter in the air the entire time. So as Tab was alluding to before, we had a team of spotters that would actually go up. There was three ridges that we could put spotters on so that we could cover the entire valley with binoculars to sort of wait to see when the dingoes were arriving. I've never tracked wolves, but I imagine it's kind of similar. So what we're doing is not actually looking for the dingoes. What we're doing is actually watching the kangaroos. And what you're watching for is any sort of nervous behavior in the kangaroos. So kangaroos are kind of bipedal like us. They're up on two legs. But when they're eating, they're crouched down. When they detect danger, they suddenly go erect. And in the field, we call that vert ruse for vertical ruse. So the spotters would come out on the comms, all Australian. So, you know, the sort of like laconic Australian accent, like I got some vert ruse down in the deep gudge. Um, <laughs> was what they, was what we, what Translation, we uh, some kangaroos. We would sort of track that behavior and then everyone would keep scanning and then eventually you'd usually see a dingo if you'd see enough vert ruse <laughs> kicking around. We would wait until the dingoes actually started a sort of hunting behavior. I was stationed with one of our lead cinematographers, Tom Crowley, that has worked on a lot of the world's best natural history programs in the world, including Planet Earth 2. I don't know if the audience remembers there's an incredible sequence with racist snakes and marine iguanas. Um, He was part of the team that did that sequence. So we were stationed with a helicopter pilot, and when we got the signal that the dingoes were starting to hunt, we would get into the air, and then we would have to get a lock on the animal. So we divided up the valley according to different place names so that the team on the ground could indicate to us where the dingo was. So finally we would get a lock, and then it's really important when you're filming from the helicopter, you don't want to disturb an animal from its hunt. So we would really need to hang back until that dingo really got a lock on an animal that it was going to try and hunt down. And then our helicopter pilot was absolutely incredible. And 
basically, you know, I'd be sitting in the front with him and, you know, we'd sort of shout, all right, he's got a lock. And then, you know, he would zoom in right behind this animal. And there's nothing more thrilling, I think, than being right on the tail of an animal as it's in full flight hunt. I mean, it's just an absolutely incredible experience. And, you know, as you see in the film, these, you know, they're doing all of these twists and turns as the the kangaroos are dodging and, and weaving to try and escape. Um, and, you know, we were trying to stay behind the, the dingo the entire time. So the, the helicopter is just you know, you know, swinging around and around, um, which I think from the actual end footage, because the cinematographer is constantly training the camera on the, on the dingo, you actually don't get a sense of how quickly and fast that helicopter is actually moving. And then that produced this incredible sequences of following the dingoes during the hunting. Particular shout out, one of my favorite songs in the entire film is actually the opening dingo hunt. Can you tell us maybe Logan a little bit about how that cinematography inspired that music? We did get to record Ari Mason on vocals and that scene was a lot of fun because we kind of like let her go wild with some kind of more sound effect grunts and weird breathing which is really fun to transform that into the sound of the dingo in, in a way. And we also got to record Cameron Stone on cello, which he kind of took out his electric cello for that section and went to town. So that was another fun element to add. One more thing we did do for the sound of the black forest, that's kind of like the dark forest where the dingoes are, we did take the children's choir and we kind of like slowed it down and we layered two of it on top of each other and one of them was a half step above this kind of getting into musical theory and here, but we kind of created a cluster sound, which was kind of distorted and kind of creepy, and that, that kind of was a fun way to bring in the children's choir, which was just for the kangaroos, but we made it for the dingoes as well, back and forth there. And I'm really glad you brought up the Black Forest, actually, because this was a really kind of big point um, in the film. This Black Forest is this dark lair where, you know, the dingoes that's where they live and they emerge from the black forest to hunt the kangaroos and in our sort of story world we really wanted to create this you know we tab and i would talk it's kind of like in the lion king where you know what's that shadowy place that the lion cops aren't supposed to go to (laughs) (laughs) but that's not how the black forest started out so if you remember in australia in 2020 there was the the huge australian wildfires which killed an estimated million animals in australia and namaji national park was incredibly burnt and when I first arrived on set the reason why we picked this location is that it's almost like a gladiators arena it's this incredible beautiful kind of grassy valley surrounded by eucalyptus forest and that's why especially on the helicopter you can get these incredible shots with what we call like a sort of depth of field where you can have a dingo or a kangaroo on a ridge line and then you see this kind of incredible landscape behind them And I was expecting beautiful eucalyptus forest landscape behind them, but what I found was dead, burnt trees as part of this, you know, huge devastation. But then I really kind of tried to pivot and turn that into a a kind of character in the film that became the Black Forest. And there's this kind of moment in the film where we sort of set up these wildfires do come through the Australian bush. And it was really important to try and include that into the film. You know, this is part of the texture of what these animals are living through and what, you know, all of Australians are, are sort of living through. On any given day, when you go out into the field with your cinematographers and you have spotters and things are happening, but you don't know what's going to happen. 
So do you have protocols in place? Have you met, have you all uh, sat around a table and said, if we get on a dingo hunt, this is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna use a chopper, you guys are gonna be on the ground, yeah, and you're up in the chopper calling the shots to the rest of the crew through walkie-talkie. Is that how it kind of worked? And, and if you didn't get a dingo hunt that day, do you, on a day when the dingoes didn't show up, let's say, in the morning for a hunt, would you pivot to, okay, we need bird shots. We need, you know, the clouds coming over today. Let's see if we can do some, that kind of stuff. So you would always do something. Yeah. Right. So that was always dependent on what the valley gave you. That's right. And I mean, everything you said is completely correct. So there's a full plan before we go out. And this is why natural history cinematography is so difficult, because usually, say, you're filming uh, a crime series or a adventure series. If you're working with humans, you can plan everything. And you basically just need to set the parameters and then you hire the crew and then you go out and film it. With natural history, you can't predict anything. And we actually need to first completely understand the animal behavior and then decide how we're going to try and film it and then decide which crew, you know, as a director, you're going to hire to try and film that. So everybody has a different speciality. So like mm -hmm. dingoes, you need helicopters to film. Filming Warren the Wombat, one of the other characters, that was a completely different setup for that shoot. If you're trying to film underwater animals, that's a completely different team. Um, so first you really need to understand your animal and its animal behavior before then you can decide how you're going to try and film it. And so a huge amount of planning and research goes into all of that. And what you're always trying to do as a natural history director is narrow that risk down. So the more you understand, the more you can improve your odds of going out to film what you want to try and film. But then the beauty of something like Kangaroo Valley is that you're there to capture the entire ecosystem. So a lot of the time, if you're working on a series, you're going out to film a particular sequence, you want to get a particular behavior, and if that behavior is not happening, then you're not getting anything. Whereas with you know Kangaroo Valley, one of my favorite moments was we were following Marla and her mother down the hill into the trees so the kangaroos sort of rest in the middle of the day in the you know in the bright sun and they were one of the first to arrive in the shade of the trees and we were down in there filming and then all of the rest of the mob joined them in the trees and because we were already there and all the other kangaroos were cool with it everyone arrived kind of gave us a look and was like well if everyone else is cool with it like i'm we're cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so by the end of it we were surrounded 360 degrees by kangaroos just quietly filming them and you know for a feature film it's actually these quieter moments where the audience really comes to relate with you with your character a lot of people in the audience talk about the moment where you know marla reunites with her mother yeah, and they're they're licking each other very, very tender yeah. you know that's those those are sort of the shots that really make you feel that character yeah well those are also the kind of shots that we anthropomorphize especially women and their relationship with their children in particular i mean i get choked up every time i see that scene you know, and so we bring our own emotions to the table too, which is fine. But I just also would piggyback a little bit on what you're saying in terms of your prep for shooting. In terms of my prep for writing, I'd never written a documentary before. So it almost became like screenwriting in reverse because we would sit in those three days of story development and we would have ideas, but it had to be supported by the footage. We came up with several good ideas. Nope. 
we don't have that <laughs> shot. Nope, we don't have that footage. So you just have to jettison them. And so it's almost like screenwriting in reverse. And so it was really a fascinating process for me and a lot of fun. And Kylie made it very easy for us to collaborate because she was so open and so willing and generous there was no ego in the room whatsoever it was all about let's make the best movie we can or the best documentary we can uh, yeah i second that totally yeah yeah so she's so, such a trusting person it was we were all invited in to participate not to just stand by and, and watch somebody else do all the work so when you get that kind of synergy and that kind of openness so many good things can come out of that you mm. know so thank and you, you should, kylie you should talk about one of your pivotal moments in the writer's room with Miro's character I spoke about this a little bit in the Q&A, but, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, even though I'd never been to Australia, I certainly knew what kangaroos, although I didn't know how much about kangaroos, I learned a lot on this documentary, but I knew dingoes. I knew dingoes had been hunted and vilified and trapped and shot and pretty much villainized wherever they were found in Australia. But as we got into looking at footage and talking about the story and I would say, well, do you have a shot of Miro doing this? Yeah, we got that shot. Yeah, we have that shot. It began to emerge that as I watched some of this footage, that dingoes aren't villains. They're just being themselves. They have to hunt. They have to feed their pups. They have to survive in a harsh environment. And I thought, well, maybe we have a chance here to maybe tell us parallel story or we all agreed we had a chance to because the footage supported it to tell a parallel story not just of Mala's journey but of Miro's journey and how I think we all were hoping at the end of this that anybody watching the film would have just as much empathy for Miro as they would for Mala. Even though they both at the very end came together and one was the hunter and one was the prey. So I think we succeeded in that. And I get choked up when I see, there's a great shot and I, somebody got it with a drone, I think, but there's a great shot after Miro gets kicked out of the pack and he's walking across a dry creek bed and his shadow is following him and it's from above looking down and it is the quintessential I am alone shot in the world, you know? It just, it's like, wow, they just, uh, I, that was such a great grab. So that kind of stuff. And, and I think that's what Kylie wanted to do from the beginning. I think that's what you delivered in spades. And what I tried to help with is to make this as a much of an emotional experience to view instead of just sort of this dry kind of here's a do you know dingo doing this and here's a that we really wanted to engage the audience you know mm -hmm. so i think we succeeded yeah we sort of passionately believe that that's the power of storytelling australia has the fastest extinction rate of mammals in the world and as tab was talking you know dingoes are so vilified and persecuted yet the conservation studies keep showing that if we protect our dingoes then a lot of those other animals would be protected as well and one of the major issues in australia is feral animals that have been introduced you know foxes rabbits that are you know pushing out all of the native australian animals and right. dingoes actually help repress those foreign pests so so being able to make people feel something for Miro and make people feel for all of the animals and to really see how they all work together in this ecosystem was something that we really wanted yeah. to try and achieve. 
for what it's worth, I think that it really was one of the most profound films I've ever seen. And I'm really honored to be sitting here with the team behind Kangaroo Valley, which we just watched for the International Wildlife Film Festival. Today is Earth Day. Kylie is the director and producer. Logan is the composer and Tab is the screenwriter. Definitely look it up. Kangaroo Valley. Look it up and watch it. Now, today is Earth Day. Earlier today, I was walking around dressed as a giraffe asking kids <laughs> why every day is Earth Day. And their answers were beautiful. And I wanted to just kind of talk to you guys a little bit about wildlife conservation. I feel like we're at a very pivotal point in our planet. Like Kylie said, Australia is losing mammals faster than anywhere else in the world. And many of the films that we are seeing during this festival, we're being reminded about why it's so important right now to speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. So I would like to just hand it over to you all and maybe reflect a little bit about that importance in this time that we're living in. Okay. You know, very early in my career, I had the very good fortune to co-write a movie called Gorillas in the Mist, uh, which was the story of Diane Fossey, who was uh, one of the Leakey girls. Louis Leakey hired her to go into the Virunga Mountains of Rwanda and study mountain gorillas. And at the time I wrote that movie, and at the time I traveled to Rwanda and hiked in and sat in one of the most incredible wildlife experiences with gorillas and had them look in my eye, and boy, when that happens and they look at you and see you, it's like, whoa. It's almost like, it's hard to say, uh, you know, like that feeling of like, I'm looking at something that is so close to my DNA. It freaked me out a little bit. But that experience, and in those days, in the late Late 80s, mountain gorillas were severely endangered. I mean, there were very few family gorilla groups living in the Virungas. They were, you know, beset by poachers constantly, and babies were being stolen from family groups and sold to zoos in Europe, and it was a terrible situation. So, these days, though, especially with uh, the movie coming out and, you know, some awareness, and by the way, that country had been farmed and so the jungle had been whittled down their habitat was very small you would walk across to get to into the jungles you'd have to walk across all this farmland that had been developed and the jungles would just start at the end of somebody's farming plot and just a huge wall 20 30 feet of jungle would start and you go in inside it and go up and and try to break a, a gorilla trail but there were people farming right next to the jungle that didn't even know gorillas lived in that. Wow. And so one of the things the movie did and one of the things the government of Rwanda realized through the advent of, of tourism was that there was a way where everybody could win, especially the gorillas. And now that whole situation has changed. The government has embraced tourism. People that live around the jungle love the gorillas. They know they exist now. You know, it brings tourists, which brings money. So there's a whole preservation in place, and the gorillas have rebounded in ways that are, uh, you know, just you know, heartening to see. And so I've seen it from dire to coming back. You know, we are in dire situations throughout the world, but it can come back, but it just takes concerted effort. It also takes us as caretakers to be stronger caretakers in situations as well. So, 
And I think there's a younger generation coming up with it that has a lot of interest in this. So I think we just need to, you know, collectively understand what our place is in this world and what everything else's place is and how everything else deserves and has a place. That's exactly right. It's, it's interesting you talk about Gorillas in the Mist because that film was a while ago now and and so much has changed even since then. And I really truly believe that when you go back, what, 100 years, 150 years in North America, here in Missoula, all of our incredible animals, uh, bears, wolves, were all seen as something to be hunted and exterminated. And when you go back into the record, there's these incredible accounts of the annual bird migrations across North America would black out the sun. There were so many birds. Can you imagine that? It's absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. And yeah. in Australia, there's this very elusive, what is now thought of as a very elusive creature, a platypus. There's a couple of shots of the platypus in Kangaroo Valley, actually. Again, when you go back into the records in Australia, there's this description of migrations of platypus, as in these like 30, 40 platypus all swimming together up a river. I mean, I can't even imagine that, having yeah. grown up in Australia and seen platypus, you know, hundreds of times. They're incredibly rare today. And just the way things have shifted, even in the, the last sort of several decades, I think what is exciting is that we're no longer trying to shoot every bird out of the sky. And the conservation movement, I think really, we definitely are, as Mandela was saying, facing this very pivotal moment. But I think we also do need to celebrate our triumphs. And I think the way that people think about wildlife really has shifted. And I do think a lot of the credit for that goes to the incredible storytellers that we have in the world that have brought these animals into everyone's living rooms through television and through film and has gotten audiences to be able to relate to those animals. And that's definitely something that, you know, I think me and the rest of the team are really passionate about in continuing that sort of fight to capture the hearts and minds of people around the world about this incredible wildlife. I don't have the skills to become an activist on the ground or to do the incredible conservation work that you do, Mandela. My skill base is as a storyteller, and so, you know, I want to well, wield, wield uses, that power in the way. what they have, mm -hmm. because it's a collective effort, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I just want to piggyback onto what you said, because I think it is important. It's, there's enough doom and gloom out there, and there's mm -hmm. enough rightful doom and gloom out there, but I think it is important to celebrate when and there are successes. You know, bison mm -hmm. is a great example. Wolves coming back to Yellowstone now, wolves in, you know, northeastern Washington, packs being seen in northern California for the first time. Wolverines being spotted on the Columbia River in southern Oregon. Mm -hmm on a camera, a lion in Chad, a Chad in country that has not had lions in 50 or 60 years mm -hmm. is caught on a webcam astounding people like in Chad, like where did this line come from? So there is opportunities for these animals to come back from places they've been persecuted and vilified and chased out of, mm -hmm. either through loss of habitat or, or whatever reason. So it can work. That's the thing. It can work. It doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. We just have to know it can work and then find a collective way to work together to make it happen. And I think it's important to have that hope because otherwise people yeah. switch off. And Mandela, I mean, you have been said to me, perhaps you want to speak to that. When you came out of the film that as a conservation worker, you need these moments like you had watching Kangaroo Valley where you feel that, yeah. that sense of hope. One of the more powerful quotes that I sometimes share with kids of all ages is, apathy towards environment is mankind's ticket to extinction. There are good things happening in the world. And as a species, I feel like we sometimes 
get stuck more on the negative and to promote positivity and also to recognize all of the good things that are happening and the people who are speaking up and the storytellers. And yeah, like you said, working in conservation feels like an uphill battle a lot. There are a lot of successes and then there's a lot of starting over again, yeah, sure. especially when you're working on policy. But education, you know, passing those laws to permanently protect wildlife and wild places, it is important. And I feel so recharged after I'm around people like yourselves, after I get to see these films where it brings me to tears like Kangaroo Valley today, be like, yeah, this is why I do this day in and day out. It's worth it. And looking forward to the next generation being able to appreciate places like Australia and where we are in Missoula, bring back the um, North American Serengeti, you know? Exactly. 200 years ago, we would be sitting in a Land Rover surrounded by bison as far as the eye could see. When the herds came through here, they would wait for days before they could even cross the valley. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Golly, I really, really hope that I'm graced by your presence again one day down the road, perhaps in this rig. Cool. Maybe <laughs> out camping around the campfire. <laughs> yeah, or, or on the river. <laughs> but I just want to say, Kylie, Logan, Tab, thank you so much for your time and your energy joining me on the trail as traveled and for everything that you do for your community, our community, and wildlife. Cool. Thank you so much. No, thank, thank you, you for having us. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, you can check out the podcast, which unfortunately doesn't have music due to copyrights, but it's available everywhere, and the full show archive is available at traillesstraveled.net. I'd like to thank my guests for this evening, the crew behind the award-winning wildlife documentary film, Kangaroo Valley. Thank you so much, Kylie, Tab, and Logan, for joining me in the back of the Land Rover Defender portable recording studio parked outside the Roxy Theater during the International Wildlife Film Festival. You can watch Kangaroo Valley on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. Definitely one of the best wildlife documentaries I've ever seen. My adventure tip this evening is in regards to self-care. I was recently interviewed on the Trail 1033 by my friend Tommy, and he stumped me with a question. He asked me what I do with my free time, and I couldn't think of what to say because I am often doing outreach and community service and, you know, kind of staying busy with my free time. That said, of course, getting on the river whenever possible one thing that I have been doing for myself once a week is heading over to Float Missoula once a week to float for one hour. Man, if you have yet to float in the float suite or the float pod at Float Missoula, I highly recommend it. I'd like to take a moment to spotlight an organization that I really believe in. As you may know, I've spent half my life working as an expedition river guide all over the world, but I did get my start and I continue to guide in Idaho on the Middle Fork and the Maine Salmon. Now there's an organization that has helped my fellow guides, the Redside Foundation. 
The Redside Foundation is a local nonprofit that serves the professional outdoor guiding community by way of providing access to mental health resources like sessions with a licensed mental health counselor, substance abuse counseling, access to continued education through scholarships and grants, and strengthening the community through community events and gatherings. Ultimately, much of Montana's strength and identity is in the outdoor and recreation industries. Fishing guides, river guides, backcountry guides, and horsepacking guides build the base of this industry. The Redside Foundation works to support a healthy and strong guiding community, which in turn builds a healthy and strong Montana community. I hope you'll join me to come and dance, eat, and support the Redside Foundation at the ZAC for their Montana Spring Fling on May 12th from 6 to 10 p.m. It's the celebration of the professional outdoor guiding community. And you can purchase tickets at redsidefoundation.org. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends, in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Please speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito. It's a collective effort. Good things are happening. Let's keep this momentum and leave this world a better place for the seventh generation. Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. In order to keep the podcast ad-free, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account.